in the city of Boston. Harvard, John Harvard was a pastor. Uh, every hospital, every, almost every center that had anything to do with dealing with orphans that wasn't government run, some of it government run still started by the church and just was adopted by the government. I just started creating a list of things where people gave to the temporal needs of others. How do we serve the widow? How do we serve the imprisoned as they come out of jail? How do we serve the orphan? How do we serve the sick? How do we serve the elderly, the young, anyone with any kind of temporal need? And I started to list the organizations that were doing that in the city of Boston. And I came to class ready to go, right? <laughs> and I sat and she began her next week of withering rebuke. And I, I raised my hand. I said, uh, Professor Spawn, how about this? Just I, I, I get all these awful things that you feel have come from the church. Let me tell you what wouldn't exist in your city if it wasn't for the people of Jesus. And I just started to list them. And she listened. You could hear a pin drop in the class. There's probably 200 students. Um, I was shaking a little bit. <laughs> she actually said this because I caught her off guard. I guess I never thought about that. Yeah, you didn't. <laughs> And then she moved on and continued to teach. I, I was blown away myself just doing the research at how much the gospel of Jesus Christ spurred this kind of service in the hearts of Christians. John Calvin said this, There's nothing in which men resemble God more truly than in doing good to others. 1 John 3, we got to start with the first line of this passage to understand the most important part of this question, why? Why would we serve others? Why would we give of ourselves to others? Why would we spend our lives sacrificing riches, sacrificing time, sacrificing wealth, or even our own lives to give to those in need? Why would we even do it? And i got to be honest, this is the crisis of our day. Because in our day, we have high moral ideals. Listen, we're getting lectured every day on the news about human rights, serving uh, racial inequity and, 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 and making it more equal, serving gender inequity and making it more equal. We have really high moral ideals, human rights, helping the poor, helping the, the underrepresented, helping the underprivileged. You know, that is what we talk about all the time. And, and the dichotomy of our culture is that we have really high moral ideals, and no longer anymore do we have any moral source to feed them. We tell all of our kids every day that the most important thing you can do, watch the Disney Channel for 10 seconds, is follow your heart, you do you, be you, it, it, don't listen to your community's needs, don't listen to your family's advice, you individually, radically, be who you are, and don't let anyone tell you any different. Yet at the same time, the most important thing for you to do is fulfill all these huge higher moral needs. And when people disagree with us, the only thing we can do is shout at them because we have no moral source for our high moral values. Well, if you were as educated and as smart as we were, as progressive as we were, you'd think the same way. That's really the only argument. 
The reality is people have been serving the poor and loving the, those in need and laying their lives down for others. And, and, and we need to ask ourselves why. And historically, throughout the history of the planet, particularly Western civilization, the reason why is this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How do we even know what love is? Our Savior, he gave up glory to be a person, to be fully man and fully God. He gave up glory and humbled himself. Our Savior lived the righteous life none of us are capable of living. None of us do good. Romans 3, no one chooses good, no, not one. Even our good choices are with selfish motives. We are bent by sin. In the God who knew no sin, he came and he gave up glory. And then on the cross, he laid down his life for us. He became sin, the most despicable sight in the history of the world. And he absorbed the wrath of God for sin on our behalf and gave up his life for us. Why? So we don't have to. So that we receive a foreign righteousness that's not our own. It's his. It's the righteousness he lived. And, and we receive freedom from the payment for sin. Why? Because he paid for it. He endured the punishment on our behalf. So the Christian who knows love, they know love because they have a Savior who laid down his life for them. And the more that comes into view is the more we realize what real love is and for a people who have been saved by grace, redeemed by a Savior who gave everything, there is a response not to earn favor. Please, Christian, hear this. Your works do not earn you anything. You can't add to this salvation. You can't earn brownie points so God loves you more. He already loved you as much as you could ever be loved in the cross. That's how you know love. Jesus laid down his life for you. Amen? But here's the evidence, as James says it, and as Paul says it. The evidence that you know that love, and you have faith, and you believe in it. The evidence of it, the reason you know your faith exists, is that you now begin to lay your life down for others. Wow. What an incredible response. And people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout history have been laying down their life for others. Why? So that God would like them better? No. Because God already loved them. And they're living lives of worship. Amen? That's what God's calling us to do today. This is something we have to diagnose. Where is our faith at? Where's our faith? Is it resulting in evidence? Stuff that pops up in our life. Decisions we make. The way we deal with our time, the way we deal with our money, the way we deal with our lives, the way we deal with our children, the way we deal with those in our community around us. Is there evidence in the church? Is there evidence in our lives, people who know love because of the cross of Jesus Christ? Is there evidence that we actually believe it? Because if there is, we'll be laying down our lives for others. Amen? Our response is to imitate Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And our imitation is by no means as significant. Our blood doesn't save anybody. Our blood doesn't redeem. 
Our sacrifice doesn't do what the sacrifice of Christ did that is unique and complete and and remarkable. But in, in response to that sacrifice, he's calling us to lay down our lives for others. What a, what a remarkable life we're to live as Christians. Our response is significant. You know, this has been the, the, the reality of Scripture from the beginning to the end. Um, you, you can trace this, this idea of meeting temporal needs and spiritual needs in word and in deed throughout the Scriptures. Do you go back to Genesis? Think about Adam for a moment. When you, when you go back to Genesis and you see Adam and Eve, the, 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 the mandate from God to Adam and Eve is what? Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over creation. Take care of it. Care for creation. Take care of the physical and the spiritual needs. Um, and God, since the fall, has been redeeming both. If you think about the fall in Genesis, uh, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And, and immediately when sin entered the world, they were alienated from God. They hid, right? They, 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 they had to leave the garden. They were afraid. They were alienated from themselves when sin came into the world. And they, they, uh, they had fear and they had anxiety that they had never had before. When sin entered the world and in the fall, uh, the, there was social alienation from each other. Remember? They, they were cool being naked and now they're throwing on fig leaves. And they want to not be seen. And, and they, they immediately have the first marital fight in history, right? You ate the fruit. No, you ate the fruit. And, and all of a sudden, uh, there was a fight. Since the fall, there's sickness, aging, death. And God, throughout Scripture, is about His redemptive purposes. And his redemptive purposes have always been, always been, to deal with all the results of sin. God is redeeming a people back to himself, and God is redeeming everything that sin has caused. Someday we see in scriptures a new heavens and a new earth, amen, where tears are wiped away, where sickness and sin and death don't hurt us anymore. And God is in the process of redeeming not just his people, but he's in the process of redeeming everything back to himself. Trace it through Abraham, right? All the families of the world through your seed will be blessed. God's covenant with Abraham. And we see ultimately that that's fulfilled in Jesus. That ultimately that's fulfilled in the cross. But who is the first person where the nations were blessed through Abraham's seed. Joseph. Remember Joseph? As he uh, is thrown into a pit by his brothers, and then, and then he ends up through this providence of God of being in a pit and being imprisoned and, and going through all this difficulty after, after he saw this, this crazy vision of his family bowing down to him. At the end of the story of Joseph, we see Joseph as the administrative second-in-command in all of Egypt that ruled the world at the time. And there is massive poverty and massive famine, and people are starving and dying. And Joseph's family now that hasn't seen him for years and years and years is now scrambling into Egypt to somehow try to grab food and somehow try to try to be saved physically and Joseph blesses all the people of the world by feeding them 
Here's brothers come into the chamber and bow to him and don't even realize it's the kid they threw in the pit. And he feeds and meets temporal needs. Israel, just look at Deuteronomy and the social legislation at Sinai. God commands from the beginning, I'm calling you to care for the poor. I'm calling you to care for the widow. I'm calling you to care for the orphan. This is how you will know, or we will know, that you care for me. If you care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Isaiah, in the prophecies, the messianic prophecies about Christ. Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58. Fast and pray, but the fast that I choose is to loose the yokes of injustice and to share bread with the hungry. So there's been this calling all the way through, and then you walk into the the New Testament, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You see uh, uh, 1 Proverbs. I'm sorry, I'm still in the Old Testament. He who who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. God relates to the poor. In Leviticus 19.34, it says, The alien living with you must be treated as a native-born. You were aliens in Egypt, but I brought you out. I've redeemed you. When people come to you in need of redemption, do the same. I brought you out of Egypt. Now do the same to those in your presence, in your midst. There's a constant theme in Scripture that by being a Christian, you've experienced the riches of a Jesus who cares and saves you. And the Word of God, as we diagnose our spiritual health today, is saying as you focus in on the cross and the riches of God that you've received in the righteousness of Christ and in the forgiveness of God, don't forget who you are. As a Christian, don't forget who you are. You're saved by grace. You are poor and desperate and needy. There's a passage in James 1 that really illustrates this, and it's kind of controversial. But you really see it laid out clear. That as a poor person, God declares that you are adopted as a son or a daughter. You are rich. You're a prince. You are, you are to be held up. Someone who's not experiencing social wealth and being rejected and downcast. The identity of the gospel comes and and declares to you that you are an heir, that you are loved, that you are adopted. And as a monetarily rich Christian, the scriptures remind you, as you experience the benefits of wealth and comfort and ease and the ability to engage in entertainment and meet all your needs, don't forget that you were poor. See, your identity is not based on your bank account. Your identity as a Christian is not based on your social status. Your identity as a Christian is not based on your vocation. Whether you walked in off the street and don't have a home, or you're a partner in a law firm, the identity of your life as a Christian is the gospel. Recognizing we are desperate and poor and in the same boat and in need of the grace of God. And the riches of God have been lavishly poured out upon us in Christ. Amen? 
So if you are here today and you need to hear that you are adopted and you are loved and you are given the wealth of, of the God of the universe who has everything and, and controls everything and is sovereign, that is you today. And if you're here and you're dependent and, and puffed up in your own ability to attain physical temporal wealth in this world, remember you're poor in spirit and in desperate need of the grace of God as much today as you were the first day you realized it and prayed for Jesus to save you. Our identity is the gospel. Amen? Amen. That shapes who we are and how we live. So as we take a look at spiritual diagnosis, man, we really got to take a look at how much we care about other people in need. There is no way around this, folks. I mean, we, we in evangelical American Christianity supposedly, like, get a million different apps and dates and books about how to read through the Bible in a year, right? I mean, I've been around Christianity forever, and we're, we're to, like, we, we generally do this. Like, most churches, folks, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. I'm reading through, I'm doing this, I'm reading these, I'm doing this, I'm in this study, I'm in this Bible study. And, and, and how do we miss this? It's everywhere. I'm yelling at myself this morning as I was praying. How have I missed this for so long? I don't mean to sound angry. I'm angry at me. I'm, I, I feel, I love the prayer that Ethan prayed this morning. I feel repentant this morning for my sin of greed. Spent 12 years at the DA's office prosecuting uh, sex crimes, child abuse, homicides. A lot of domestic violence cases. And one day I was sitting in the front conference room with a family. Not really a family, some folks. And this uh, beautiful girl came walking in. She was a victim in a sexual assault case. She was 13 years old. Her mother didn't have any heat. It was winter. I'm sorry, her grandmother, who she lived with, didn't have any heat. It was winter. And she sent her to live with a quote-unquote friend who's a 50-year-old man in the city because he had heat in his house. And so this poor 13-year-old girl's ability to have a bed, have heat, have food, uh, be able to look at a cell phone, was all contingent on things she did for this 50-year-old man. And I remember sitting in the conference room with her and talking through her story. And I guess what struck me initially about her was she was absolutely beautiful i remember just thinking wow like this this young girl uh just is like um just so unique and so her eyes and her she's vanessa williams type beauty like this this girl just just had beautiful features and i remember thinking what, what a beautiful girl and then she began to talk and i thought what a intelligent girl she's sharp she's smart she's not really educated well at 13 as she should be but the capacity to be competent and educated and brilliant was there in spades. And I remember thinking to myself, if this girl was born in any other situation, she would have the world by, by her hand. Like she could do anything she wanted to do. She could live, if this girl was born into my family, she would live a life that would be so different. How unfair. One time I had to look for her 
to testify. And I grabbed an investigator and we traveled down into the city and we found her laying on a couch at another man's house that, that looked like uh, where no one should live and no one should sleep. And we found her and we got her together and we brought her in so that she would come and testify. She was living that kind of life. And I saw this story over and over and over again for 12 years. But this was one of those moments where I had a feeling of desperation. I thought to myself, who could ever fix this? This, this, this young girl's shot. There is no hope. Who could ever make this better? I don't know where she is. It was years ago. I have no idea where she's landed. I know where the 50-year-old guy landed. He's got a bunch of new friends for the next 10 years. But this morning as I prayed through this passage, I thought about her. And I kicked myself because I didn't have an answer to the question. Who fixes this? Who cares about this? Now, we argue about this all the time in our country politically. Should the government do it? Should the government not do it? Should, who, who should do this? Who should do that? Do we call it charity or do we call it justice? Do we call it mercy or do we call it so, whatever? And we got labels and we got words and we got battle lines drawn and we have conservatives and liberals fighting over, I believe, all trying to get to the same goal but disagreeing on how to get there. Throw all of that away for a minute and look at the scriptures. Christian, in light of the gospel and the fact that Jesus laid down his life for you, what are you doing with your time, with your money, and with everything that God has given you? And diagnose your and my spiritual health by are we giving our lives to others? Because the answer is right here. The answer to those questions in our society that drive us crazy. Yes, our family's falling apart and it's almost impossible to help if there's no family structure. Is, is, are there, is there millions of issues? There's millions of issues. It's so complex. It's so complicated. But yet in the scriptures, it's so simple. If you see your brother in need, don't just talk about it and do nothing. Because if you do, God's love doesn't abide in you. But if you have the wealth of this world and you see your brother in need, act. Act. Why? Jesus laid his life down for you. And you know what love is. Don't say you have love and do nothing. Don't say you have love and not act. Jesus acted on your behalf. You know what love is. When you see it, love. How much more simple does it get than that? You say, Jeremy, what do we do? I don't know. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do to display the gospel in our society, to, to display the reality that we are so loved, this, to display the reality that Jesus has done everything for us. There is a lot to do in return. There is a lot of need in this world, and we need to be about meeting it. Amen? We need to be about the work of meeting it. I think it really takes some introspection if we're going to diagnose our spiritual health in relationship to our growing concern for others. It's going to take some introspection. John the Baptist, when Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist sent for Jesus when he was in prison, remember? And he said to Jesus, uh, are you the one? You know, he's, what a question to ask. 
John the Baptist, who made such incredible declarations preparing the way for the Lord, uh, now he's in prison, he's about to lose his head. And he's asking the question probably any of us in that situation would be asking. Hey, I'm just making sure. <laughs> All right? Are you the one? Or should we be looking for another? And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 11 in response. He said, you go back and you tell John the Baptist this. And he's quoting the prophecy, messianic prophecies. The blind see. The lame walk. The leopards are cleansed. And poor people have good news preached to them. You see, when you look at the life of Jesus, he ministered in both word and deed, did he not? When he came into the community and he had compassion on them, he healed and he preached. He met needs and he preached the word. You know, I think it's important for us to take a look at this. As we look at the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, you know, go into the world and preach the gospel in Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the world, baptizing them, and they, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to be about the word of God, the evangelism, and, and the proclamation of the gospel and the good news. How are they going to hear if there's not a preacher? And if we are not doing that, we are not doing our job. And then we see in the great commandment, and you are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when the law scholar comes and questions Jesus about this, what story does he tell? The story of the Good Samaritan right? There's a Jewish man laying in the road, and he's beaten by thieves, and he's stripped, and he's dying, and he's naked, and he's been robbed. And the Samaritan, the man who this particular lawyer would have despised, culturally, racially, and in every way, Jesus tells the story describing who his neighbor is. The Samaritan comes, sees the man, cares for him, puts him on his horse, takes him to the inn, pays for his medical care, and meets his temporal needs. Folks, it's both. Displaying the gospel, living the great commission and the great commandment is both word and deed. It is loving our neighbors by sharing the gospel and meeting needs. Is it not? How could we? Listen, it's, I think it's important for me to say it this way. If we were to just be about meeting temporal needs, feeding the poor, uh, caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, and, and clothing those who don't have clothes, and, and, and going out and meeting temporal needs of society, and never sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we, would not, we would not be responding to the gospel in the way that God's commanded us to. And honestly, the reality that Jesus has met our greatest need, which is our forgiveness from sin and the cross of Jesus Christ, must be declared. Amen? But the reality of preaching the word of God and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone who is starving and not clothed and incapable of hearing because their temporal needs are such a felt need that that not, doesn't become their number one need, recognizing that forgiveness of sin is their number one need, but it is their number one felt need. I need a sandwich. How can we preach and not meet their needs? How can we not come in response to Jesus who did both, who laid his life down for us and begin to meet the needs of others? And so we see throughout scripture, John 13, 35, as he declares to the disciples, you're going to know, people are going to know that you follow me by your love for one another. Amen? How do, the, how do people know we follow Jesus? Love for one another. What does 1 John 13 say? Don't say you love and don't do anything. 
If God's love truly abides in you, love is, is action. Jesus, when it says he had compassion on the crowd, he didn't just feel sorry. See, our word for compassion is woefully inadequate to describe the biblical word for compassion. The biblical word for compassion is this. It's not just feeling bad. It's entering into the sufferings of another. It's getting involved. Scriptures don't hide the ball, do they? The scriptures are clear throughout. Our love needs to be a love of meeting needs and caring for others in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think I've mentioned this before. There's a remarkable YouTube video you should take a look at. It's interesting. It's 20 minutes. But it's Dr. Tim Keller standing in front of British Parliament. And they ask him a question. It's their prayer breakfast. What can Christianity bring to British culture today? And Keller gives an unbelievable answer. It's a 20-minute answer that I can't mimic. But he ends up by saying, to ask me what could Christianity bring to British culture today is churlish. That's the word he used, churlish. I had to look it up. Silly. He walked through historically everything it's already brought. From the very first monk in the 300s to declare for the first time in history, written down, to declare how could one man own another man when we are all created in the image of God. The first protest against slavery was from a Christian. You can't own somebody who's made in the, in, the, in the image of God. Gregory, the bishop of Nyssa. Who can buy a man or sell a man once you realize he's in the image of God? Spurned on by the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who God is and who he says he is and who we are in relationship to God. That came out of his mouth when he wrote that. And it spurred anti-slavery movement. One other thing that Tim Keller mentions is a complete shift in the value system of society. Coming from a Roman shame and honor culture where the reality of the, the fabric of society that held society together was strength and honor and everything's evaluated by how, how strong I am and, and whether or not someone's strong and someone's weak. It collided, the Anglo-Saxons collided with the monks and Christianity won out. And it brought an others-centered ethic. Why? Because of the gospel. Because our Savior had died for us and given his life for us. And people began to think of others. And that you would serve others and help others because of the reality of what Christ had done for us. In a culture where uh, there's, there's hierarchy of, of power and weakness... 
in a culture where, where a man of a higher status could force himself on any woman and she, he could not be refused. Could not be refused the shame and honor culture, particularly a woman of lower status. For the first time, because of an other-centered ethic in, 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 in Western civilization as it begun, that type of sexual contact was only consensual in the context of a covenant where everybody had to agree before it happened. That didn't exist. See, what could Christianity bring to culture? Salt and light. Salt and light to bring out the best. Salt brings out the best in the meat and it preserves it. And God has called us in light of the gospel to bring out the best in culture, to be tasty, to be different than the meat, not the same, and to preserve it. He's called us to be salt and light. He's called us to care more and more in light of the gospel for the temporal needs of others around us. I think as a church, let me just say from, from the elder team, from a church standpoint, I believe this has been in our hearts from the beginning, but we really got really to get together. And we got to pray. And we got to think through. Are we doing this to the degree that God's called us to? How do we look around this community and where God has placed us and figure out the greatest temporal needs and start meeting it? Word and deed. Word and deed. Let me tell you when someone's ears will start opening up to hear the word. We start meeting needs, serving and loving. Why? Why? Jesus laid his life down for us. Amen? Let's close. And in doing that, let's think about that. We're going to sing one more song, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I think one of the things to help us, let's think about it corporately, but let's think about it individually. One of the things to help us individually begin to diagnose this is to make sure that the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for us is in constant center view in our lives. Amen? And then from there, from the reality of the cross, from the reality of the gospel, from the reality of what he's done, let's then begin together to figure out how to love better, how to lay down our lives better. You know, we're going to pray about that now. But I want to point out one more thing. We can't outgive God in this. I say that because I want to say this. To the degree we stop using all of our resources for ourselves and start living like this, Something else happens in the life of a believer. When you lose your life, you gain it. You're going to experience joy. You're going to experience a life worth living. You're going to experience that biblical joy that goes beyond your ability to understand. It's the weirdest thing. As we sacrifice temporal desires temporal wants, as we sacrifice financially and physically our homes, our space, lay down our lives to meet the needs of others, 
it begins to produce the most peculiar joy and blessedness in the life of a believer. You want to see someone who doesn't experience that joy? Hoard everything you have for yourself and pursue all your wants and desires and temporal needs and walk away from that feeling totally dissatisfied and only wanting more. Blessed is the man. Not who pursues blessedness, right? Blessed is the man who, who thirsts and seeks after righteousness. Can't outgive God. Even when we lay down our lives, he fills us with even more joy and even more purpose. We got a lot of wealthy, listen, wealthy. That's relative. There's, there's a disparate amount of wealth in this room. But every one of us living in central New York, generally, look at the statistics, we're the top 1% wealthy people on the face of the planet, period. We got everything we need. Let's think about, in light of the gospel, how we can live lives just like Jesus, laying down our lives for others, just like our Savior. How beautiful a church, how beautiful will the people of God be? as we do what God's told us to do. Word and deed. Not just loving with words. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you teach us how to live. And Lord, we, we reiterate the prayer that Ethan brought this morning. We fall so far, so far short of this. And yet you are a gracious, forgiving God. You've cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. And we come to you redeemed. We come to you loved. We come to you positionally righteous because of Jesus, not because of anything we've done. And our prayer this morning is, God, break our hearts. Use us. Don't let us take the riches of everything you've given us. Keep it to ourselves. Let us, like James, show the reality that our faith exists by our works. Help us to show the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the faith, the gift that you've given us. Help us to demonstrate the evidence of what you've done in our lives by laying down our lives and serving others. Stir in us a growing concern for the needs of others. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.